what we're really presupposing is that there is no consciousness. And then you sort of take a bunch of food and you smush it up, you chemically rearrange it. And then if you put it into the right pattern, poof, sort of a consciousness just appears from nowhere. I think that's the problem with that sort of approach. Um, and there's no scientific data to support that idea. just happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Today's episode is a bit different, as it's a philosophical discussion between myself, Darren McEnany, and Matt Riddle. I've had Darren on past episodes, episodes 7 and 8, and he and I co-hosted the episodes with Lloyd Arbach, 13 and 14. Darren is host of the Seeking Eye podcast and describes himself as a lay researcher of afterlife evidence. He's taken the same skeptical and evidential approach to this research that I have, and he's also ended up pretty blown away. Matthew Riddle, a friend of Darren's, is host of the YouTube channel Consciousness Matters, where his episodes titled things such as Unifying Science and Consciousness and are we trapped in the matrix? We all end up having some interesting conversations about the nature and meaning of consciousness. Come and listen in. This chat? Or did we have a specific kind of subject we, well, we wanted to go into? Because I, I know it was mainly you you two that I wanted to kind of get together because you're both very kind of interested in the more technical science kind of, well, I suppose it's, you've both got similar interest in the science, but Matt's more philosophy, aren't you, than, than the science of it? Um, I, I like to I like to think that my philosophy is completely underpinned by science. So, um, it, when I make rational arguments, I'm sort of appealing to physics to solve the problem, right? Um, I'll often talk about well, uh, physics as being a collection of um, mathematical laws about how you know tiny particles move or something like that. So there's um. I, I would say that I'm, I'm I'm sort of bringing a fusion of those two things to the table, uh, but not I, I mean science in the conventional stuff because I know you know a lot more about the parapsychological research than I do, Darren. So yeah, that's that's where me and Liz kind of um, are more more interested in that kind of aspect of things. I can enjoy the philosophy for the fun of it, 
and I enjoy that. But really, yeah, my passion is more the parapsychological research because that gives me mm. the others just fun and sort of playing with your mind and limitless possibilities. But the other, I guess if I'm more like emotional, like it gives me solid hope and foundation and security and comfort that this isn't it. Whereas philosophy doesn't do that. It's but I enjoy it. So I guess merging the two, I really do enjoy. I would say that there's there's something that's really correct there, which is that um, f- philosophy on its own can't give you answers un- unless you're sort of going to be sort of uh, coy about it or, 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 or trying to be a smart ass about it, shall I say. And uh, you're sort of saying that science is a subset of philosophy, which you could argue. But I mean, I, I sort of, I'm sort of sympathetic to sort of people's perception of philosophy because um, I think sometimes what some smart guy thought and then wrote down into a book becomes sort of a philosophy. Uh, whereas I'm really, um, I'm really trying to understand it from uh, sort of a, what would you call it? And it, it all gets lumped into philosophy as well. It's sort of like, um, how can you take it from its epistemological ground, like how we can know what is true and then sort of build up from there? And I guess the part I want to add about that with philosophy is I think often philosophy can become science. It's like expanding what is possible and maybe going, some of it obviously will end up being completely wrong. And some of it will be, you know, maybe it's 500 years ahead of where science is at. See, I would have said it is the opposite. It would go the opposite way. So as I said, science would, would probably come first with kind of the hypothesis aspect of things where someone, or, or in fact, with a personal experience or an anecdote or something, someone sees something or experiences something weird, they then hypothesize what it could be and then do the science. And then from the results, the philosophies develop. That's kind of how I look at it. But the problem with that approach is that you're assuming that science works. You're assuming there's some rationality to the, the whole framework of the idea of science. You know, you, you do you see what I'm getting at? I don't. What do you mean? You don't think there's a rationality to science? Oh, I do. No, I do. I suppose you you got to take you got to take the assumption that the scientific method is accurate in what you're trying to discover. Is that what you mean? The, the reason that science makes sense is because it's a rational approach. But rational approaches or, or, or trying to rationalize about reality is is, is you know you, you could kind of lump that into philosophy. Because obviously science started out as natural philosophy, um, but I mean, I, I certainly think it's absolutely fabulous, and it's it's clear that it's uh, given us an awful lot. Um, but I don't; it, it's still working. So, say say for example, tomorrow, just something really weird happened with reality, and rationality didn't always work. Just irrational things just started happening science wouldn't be a good framework then to test those things because it relies on a sort of a logic and a consistency and things like that in order for it to function. So I don't think it's the foundation of everything. I think there's a foundation of rational thought. And I think that on top of that, you've got science somewhere. Um, And this sort of set, if you like, of rational thought, um, I, I think that some of the ideas in that are, are, you'd call philosophy. I think the, the there's a really interesting point to what you say, which is the science only tells you sort of um, the science can tell you, say, for example, that there are correlations with consciousness and brains. Um, 
it doesn't have the ability at the moment to tell us if there's causation or not, or which, you know, the, the direction of that cause, the causation or whatever. And it the problem is that we think of science as saying that uh, in a sort of a crude fashion, there's everything, you know, we live in a material world, you know, that seems like a scientific proposition. Um, and the idea that you would sort of blink out of existence at, at death, as someone like Dawkins might argue, I don't think that's a scientific statement at all. It relies on a philosophy that isn't being talked about underneath. I suppose it depends how you kind of define, for example, you know, we, we could say that, or some would argue that blinking out of existence at death is a scientific approach because it's inductive of the data that we currently understand of how brains seem to work and correlate strongly to consciousness. So they're inducing the argument from the science that it would be more likely we blink out of existence at death. So some would argue that is science. I would say that's more a philosophical kind of interpretation of data. Well, it, it is a philosophical interpretation of data. I, I'd be very keen to talk with anyone who felt that that was a scientific statement and sort of talk it out with them. I'd imagine someone like T. Jump would probably go along with that. Although I don't know, because he, he is a philosopher, isn't he, mainly? That your brain creates consciousness, you mean, and that when you die, it's over. You're saying you don't see that as... Yeah. Yeah. I could actually say why I think that's scientific, because... But Please. Disclaimer to everyone who's listening, this isn't what I think anymore. This was me before studying this, so I'm going to be talking from that point. If you start debating me a lot, you know, I mean, go ahead, I want you to, and I'll do my best, but it's not really what I think anymore. No, that's great. So... In one sense, when you look at science, it's about tangible. Everything's tangible. And there is zero tangible evidence that when the brain shuts off, something continues. What is that? You know what I mean? Everything you see, you can't measure it. You you measure brain activity. And since it 100% correlates with as you know a fetus develops and then when the, it's born and Aside from that, it 100% correlates with the brain. You don't see any other conscious interaction. Where's the tangible evidence of consciousness? Then I suppose you could say, you could argue similarly about things like social sciences that aren't necessarily tangible, you know, um, psychology and things like that, that are classified as a science, but don't rely necessarily on tangible evidence outside of qualitative or quantitative data and questionnaires and things like that, which is a lot down to interpretation of the people you're interviewing. Yeah, so I think for the position that Liz just outlined there, what we're really presupposing is that there is no consciousness, and then you sort of take a bunch of food and you smush it up, you chemically rearrange it, and then if you put it into the right pattern, boof, sort of a consciousness just appears from nowhere. I think that's the problem with that sort of approach. Um, and there's no scientific data to support that idea. So... If you, if say, for example, we presuppose a different model than the materialist model, because otherwise we'd be just going in a circular argument, you know, we'd be assuming a certain thing and then arguing to prove it. So if we assume uh, analytical idealism, that the whole of reality is a conscious system. And so what the brain does is, is what, what a person is, is kind of a dissociation from that in some fashion, right? If we presuppose something like that, then you don't get consciousness from nowhere, which is not very scientific in the first place, I would argue at least, and I'm sure many other people would argue against that as well, but you're getting it from somewhere, which is what we normally expect. We normally expect things to come from somewhere, right? So uh, 
in such an argument, you'd still see all of the same uh, things that we see today. You would see, you know, uh, <laughs> what looks like a, an unconscious uh, bunch of cells develop into a human being and then die. You know, you'd see that, but you don't get to scientifically track where that consciousness has been, where it was before and where it's going after. Do you see what I'm getting at? Because we can't model it as an entity. Mm-hmm. That's the problem that we've got. And I suppose what I'm trying to suggest with sort of like uh, the reasoning that I keep bringing forward is that we can start to model consciousness as an entity. I think what I would have said to you before is that then how come we only have, we don't really have strong memories of other things besides here. And now I have to say that's not true because I've read all this research where we do have strong memories of things like past lives, but that's not accepted in the scientific community, unfortunately. You know, the work of Dr. Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson of Previous Lives or all this people accessing other dimensions. Science isn't taking that seriously enough. But, you know, with science really un- aware of all that, then that really would be the question that I think many would say. But, you know, I find it maybe a little hard to go too far with this because everything I'm saying, I know now isn't true, you know, which would really come down to, you know, why don't, why aren't there other memories? And I guess at some points, I still do wonder why everybody doesn't have them or why they aren't stronger. But okay, well, there's a couple of ways of addressing that. So one of them would be to take the typical sort of materialist way of looking at the world and sort of somewhat, you know, just modify it for the hypothesis very slightly. Um, If for any reason that your attachment to the memories is in your brain, or if the memories are actually in your brain, then we wouldn't expect you to remember something from outside. Yeah. Uh, Another way of looking at it would be if you follow something like Rupert Sheldrake's uh, morphogenetic fields idea is that um, your sort of memory is attached to your form. So as soon as you take this new form, you've kind of got this new memory set. Which gets into then what's you, you know, and yeah. then that gets into yeah. what's you because, <laughs> I mean, which that gets super philosophical because. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole the whole idea of you is essentially your memories, isn't it? Everything that built, that's build, that builds you as a personality it's effectively derived from the memories and experiences you have and the way that you interpret how to use them. Maybe. I mean, I don't define it. You don't define it. That's the end of your sentence. You, I, I, don't, I don't define it that way anymore. Sorry. So I don't, for me, I see myself as uh, consciousness. I, I see. I can't, I could, I could disbelieve my memories. Right. So I, I can't say they're a fundamental part of me. I think the fundamental essence of me is this, uh, for want of a better phrasing, it's it's an entity that has subjective experiences and makes some sort of choices and affects the world. Mm. So the thing behind the experience, that the experience takes part in, yeah. or takes part on, yeah. But fundamentally active and participatory, yeah. I think some is memories, that's part of it, but part of it just seems to be innate character traits, Um who knows what else? I mean, that's the question of philosophy, one of the questions. And that's something that really can't have a tangible answer of what makes me a me. And I remember, I think I've really gone down the rabbit hole a little bit with that when 
the very first bit of evidence of afterlife I got, which stemmed from a question just because at this point thinking our consciousness was created by a brain just because it happened once to experience a feeling of being a me. Why couldn't that happen again where I'd get to experience being a me? I wouldn't, didn't think, you know, karma would be related or anything spiritual, just another brain and human would create or animal. I mean, who knows? And it would just be another me. Like why could the dumb luck of neurons firing not create an experience that I would have feelings for? And then that's where, I started to think, is there any possibility? We don't really know how all memories are stored. Is there any possibility that any of these memories have carried over? If that's possible, then that was a Google search I did where I found Jim Tucker and, you know, changed my whole life. And that these these memories don't also don't seem to be purely mental. There does seem to be some physical memories as well. For example, those who are born with certain birth defects or birthmarks that resemble the accident that took their lives in previous lives, you know, in in some instances. So, and I've spoken to a woman a long time ago, go called Sherry Anshara, who was talking about cellular memory. And I never really understood that because I was very early on and I didn't have much grip of it. I still don't. But the idea that memory is contained within every kind of cell in the body to some degree, instead of just in the, in the physical brain. And these cases of, um, it's even, there are even cases of someone who had organ transplants who developed memories of the person that the organ came from and certain skills of that person, things like that, which would could suggest that memory is stored in the, in the cells of the rest of the body other than just in the brain, if indeed it is in the brain at all, which it may not be. I'm sure I remember seeing something about um, research being done to see if cells had memories and then there being some experiments that seem to turn out results that yeah they do uh i'm not sure exactly which cells they were but uh, just you know a, a quick search of cellular memory there's some stuff that comes up that suggests it does go on and think of just even within this life i mean i feel it like i feel my muscle memories memories stored in our body um good memories bad memories they're just stored in our body that we have no logical memory of like an interesting experience i have with this is i hadn't even given this thought until I started studying this but like if you look at something metal or think of like metal in winter I get like this ugh feeling like if I've seen like I don't remember some movie or someone once saying oh if you lick that and you get your tongue stuck on it it's like I physically feel I have this whole entire feeling of it and my mom told me I got my tongue stuck in my baby carriage when I, I licked it when and I you know it was a couple months I don't remember that but I have this very visceral physical memory of it and I would have no way of knowing if I hadn't been told so we probably have I mean that's a dramatic one but we yeah although in that case couldn't you couldn't couldn't it be argued that um although the reaction is in the body the memory may still be in the brain as opposed to in the actual place you're having the reaction yeah yeah well you know that there's something here that's always fascinated me and it's you can always make the argument that it is all just the brain and that your brain's just sort of giving you an impression that something exists in your body. But I've never really understood why it was that emotions seem to be centered, you know, around the center of your being. In the gut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the deal with that? That doesn't make any sense. I don't get that. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, we know that there's a huge mass of, of neurons in the gut, in mm. the stomach, isn't there? They call it the second brain. And that's why when you're stressed or you're, undergoing some sort of emotional thing it it messes with your bowels and your digestive system 
because mm. there's such a mass of neurons in your in your gut. So it makes sense that that's kind of you'd get a sensation there if if you're being flooded with these serotonin chemicals or whatever because the synapses are there in huge amounts. I guess, but I guess I don't the know. thing. I guess the thing that seems curious to me though is that you know they they there's been speculation that when babies touch you know all parts of their t- their toes and uh, all over their body that they're trying to calibrate their sensory system so their brain goes oh yeah that there means this here so now I know that if I get uh, you know if I if I get an input here it means that that part of my body has contacted something you know you 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 have to learn these things and so that's the bit that I don't get how could you look you know you, you're not going to have emotions as far as I understand in any conventional sense don't you know uh, enter your body at a particular point how would you calibrate that I mean none of that makes sense no no I know what you mean the one the thing that interests me as well in kind of the idea of memory is watching animals especially dogs because well for me mainly dogs because I've had dogs and it's amazing how they're never taught certain things like you know how how to scratch when they're sleeping how to hump is a big one they all know how to do these sorts of things you know and instinctively they they know how to do it they don't have to be taught they don't have to watch or learn or copy it's it's almost as if it's a built-in memory and that's where kind of rupert sheldrake's morphic resonance and things like that come into play yeah i mean you could also use sort of standard evolutionary biology arguments you know just whatever it was about the physical system that was that animal you know, is selected for the behaviours that work. So effectively, those skills are built into the brain, to their brains as it's evolved. Yeah, yeah, they've evolved that way. That's right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm only trying to provide an, you know, a, another way of looking at it rather than saying that the Sheldrake's hypothesis is wrong because I certainly don't think that it's wrong per se. I'm very interested in it. Yeah, I think there's, you know, what I would guess now with the research I've done is that who we are, like, in this one life and in one sense we're a combination of all our lives our personalities and as well as and then in this life like being like me as liz this is how i navigate in this physical body you know like my body tells me i like certain foods you know maybe i was another life where i hated those foods and we identify that stuff as part of our personality um, you know, we have certain levels of energy, maybe someone who's considered quote unquote lazy in this life, you know, maybe they have physical something that hasn't been diagnosed or who knows what. And they're really, you know, I mean, some of those things that maybe are just how we respond in a body is our given personality traits, as well as things that are probably continual. Like my guess is like sense of humor, like the type of humor we have. Some of that might be cultural and some of that might be continual personality traits that go into another other lives and then you also can see the change as you if you look at yourself i mean one thing that sort of really opened me to an afterlife evidence too is you look at how we define ourselves and it changes but it's almost as if you know you take a five-year-old and you're like i am five years old you know i know in other languages they'll say like in french i have five years i have five years but in english I am five years old. I have heat. I am hot. Yeah. Yeah. uh, yeah. Or I am a teenager or I am. I mean, all things that are very transient Mm -hmm. and we define them as that. And we define our relationships that way, but they completely change. And I guess that's where I see it 
some things are consistent and some things transform in the afterlife. Like my relationship with like my parents at one was obviously very different than at 19. And like in that little moment, we define being certain things we just define as me, you know, I am a first grader and that's such a transient little thing. And I think if we go snap out and really look at the big picture, that's probably what consciousness in life is things that carry through all of it. I am Liz. I love animals. Mm. I love, I'm very social and outgoing. Like those are things that stay and probably I would guess would stay into other lives. Like those things whereas other things just you know are very very temporary mm. it's a very interesting area of, of discussion that so what we're talking about i think is interlife continuity because I, I i do a certain amount of the rationalization that i do without assuming such a thing and you still get it to a certain extent so let me just paint a picture there um let's say uh, you have a nice life you die, you start off again, but you don't remember anything. You don't even necessarily have the same personality traits. You, you don't even know what happened. You, you just, as far as mm -hmm. you're concerned... As if starting again for the first yeah, time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like now. You just have no memory. Now, if that were true, all the contributions that you made to the world, made to the world are still going to be with you. All the things that you put out there are still going to come back. The memory is in human society in such a model. But... I mean, I think it's a little bit dry and boring in a sense when you know you've got these ideas of wow, you know, this does seem to be some evidence for some uh, continuity between lives and things that are carried over. I really like those ideas a lot, but if you consider them being absent, it's still quite interesting. Yeah, but, but I suppose the, the key point is that there is data there. You know, that's the that's the important thing. You know, although it may seem kind of fanciful or whatever, the important thing is there is science to support that. Sorry, Liz, you were going to say something. Yeah, I was going to say what I find interesting that changes that a little bit is, okay, next, uh, I don't remember how long ago the first human supposedly was on Earth and, you know, before that dinosaurs, like, and you're saying... I don't think saying, anybody knows, do they? Not exactly. I mean, I think there's science about it. I'd have to Google it, but I, I don't know if we know 100% accurately. And obviously, like, if you did something back in the caveman days and then, you know, moving on and on and on over the thousands and thousands of years your your contributions are staying within society but what if you go further back than that i mean i was just reading an article and i've always wondered this too like they can't go back that far like way before dinosaurs like millions of years ago what if there were they, there was an article saying i forget which scientist but it was very interesting and that there were intelligent reputable modern like a species i mean maybe they'd evolved as humans maybe they were a little bit different but you know we seem to be pretty much moving towards self-destruction and so others have probably done that and then we've probably done it on other planets you know i have no doubt there's humans or similar on other planets somewhere and i wonder how much of us are self-destructive you know with climate change like we're not going to be here forever and even if we were flawless the sun's going to burn out at some point you would have thought they'd find some sort of trace of old technology if they had wiped themselves out self-destructively you would have thought that they would have found evidence of the equipment they used to do it because you know if, if they if all they found a kind of you know natural substances stone or whatever then the only way they would have been wiped out would be through natural causes 
that they would have seen as just the geology of the earth. If, if they'd wiped themselves out, you'd find, I would have thought, evidence of, you know, like for us, if we wipe ourselves out with um, um, with this climate issue or nuclear war or whatever, you'd find evidence of nuclear material or whatever else I would have thought. How do you know in the, like 100 million years? Everything might have completely decomposed. There'd be a whole other set of evolution. Let's say fish still survived and same Darwinian evolutionary crawl out of the water again, grow their little feet, evolve, and maybe they evolve, you know, monkeys evolve into humans, but maybe this sounds a little out there. Maybe fish evolve into very intelligent reptiles. How do we know, you know, like reptiles to our level? I mean, why monkeys? Oh, it just occurred to me that there is a problem of confirmation bias with this issue, because I think we're all pretty much taught as if that weren't the case. So we might be looking when we investigate this just to confirm what we already know. That, that, that you know, that there were, there were no humans before, that sort of thing. It's a very interesting area, but I do think I, I, I my, my reaction to that would be similar to Darren in that I, I would expect there to be some sort of clue. Uh, and I, I, go, I go through thoughts like, well, uh, you know, sometimes you have to drill quite deep for oil. It's not like we, you know, when we drill for oil and that, you know, and that oil came from vegetation, which with layers and layers of sediment, and then it gets further and, you know, deeper into the earth. Um, do we do, do we do archaeological digs that deep? <laughs> you know, how long ago are we talking about? How far down would it be? And I don't want to bundle in the assumption that everything would always be, you know, further towards the centre of the earth, because I don't think that makes sense either. Uh, although, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about plate tectonics and all the rest of it and all of the science around that area. But, I mean, it, it does it does seem intuitive that there would be some clue. But then, you know, maybe you could listen to Graham Hancock and then he could tell you about Gobekli Tepe. And... <laughs> Actually, to me, it seems intuitive that there wouldn't be after, I mean, after that much time, first of all, we don't know what to look for. If they evolved and self-destructed the exact same way we are, maybe we would know to look for little bits of technology, but who knows what's going to happen to our laptops in a hundred million years. Like, will there be remnants? We're assuming there will be, but how, we, we don't know. We have, we do not have a capacity for understanding to an extent how things work in this time frame. Also, what about other planets or universes before ours? What happened like 2 trillion years before the big bang? I mean, we go on an assumption we have, I think it's sort of a very small minded arrogantness of humanity to think this little tiny minuscule portion of time is the everything. I mean, uh, to think this is the one time ever in all of eternity that there's going to be complex consciousness in this one space, when you look at just the vastness, I think is insane. There's probably big bangs, big crunches all over, just going out into God knows where. When you frame it like that, I mean, I, I completely agree. I, I was thinking of it more in terms of local timescales of millions of years on Earth rather than what you then put it to but yeah no I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you i suppose as well you, you wouldn't be able to tell if the technology or whatever that these old civilizations may have had aren't here but we've mistakenly assumed them to be a natural subsequent like for instance you know there could have been some sort of technology that um inhabitants from some other planet somewhere came came about to create the earth's atmosphere artificially but you know if it was that long ago 
we wouldn't know that it was created. We would immediately assume that it was naturally occurring. There's no way we could tell. So I suppose, you know, there could be cases of, of human or old civilization interaction that we assume nature created but didn't. But I don't see how you'd find any evidence to support that outside of, you know, thinking because how would you prove it? But uh, an interesting theory that my dad actually supports, which I never expected he would, it's the um, ancient aliens idea that um, the the old civilizations, the Mayans and, and whatever else were, um, I suppose, assisted to create their technologies, their pyramids and their cave drawings and all that from some sort of extraterrestrial source. And there are things like cave paintings that clearly show you know, flying saucers and, and blokes with helmets on and things like that, you know, that they unearthed from hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's an interesting thought because it's not completely out the realms of possibility that there was some sort of extraterrestrial influence. The only thing I struggle with is the sheer amount of time that would be necessary for these creatures to kind of to get here, if, especially if they claim that they still visit us as UFOs, because the amount of time, the amount of distance they'd have to travel, they'd have to have left wherever they come from, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, unless they've utilized some sort of quantum entanglement technology or some sort of wormhole space bending technology, or it's an interdimensional thing. But I don't know, it's interesting, that whole idea of aliens and UFOs as well. It really is. And I actually just Googled this because... I think millions and millions of years ago is longer than we realize. Time might also function differently in other planets. Who knows how long it was for them coming here? Maybe it was their equivalent of a year and it would have been taking us a hundred years. But bones of primitive Homo sapiens first appear 300,000 years ago with brains as large or larger than ours. They're followed by anatomically modern Homo sapiens at least 200,000 years ago. And brain shape became essentially modern by at least 100,000 years ago. And in our mind, that feels, to me when I hear that, that feels so short. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I feel like Mm. we've been here 10 million years, Mm. but we haven't, you know? And for all we know, again, that sort of backs up that like within still our frame of time, we have no idea what happens to mass or matter over 20 million years. So why wasn't there whole other civilized, our level of civilizations that ended up self-destructing? And maybe there also were other humans that have completely decomposed. And, and you know, as what Darren said, for all we know, sand is 100 million years result of what was like the plastic of their, their society. That was their destruction. Yeah, it's it's, de- it's some sort of decomposed, yeah, their sort of technology decomposes into sand somehow. And then we evolved, sand was the thing that killed them because that was their like microplastics. And then we evolved over these years to be, do great with sand. I mean, we don't know that. I, I think there's certain things we can say scientifically. You know, we, we, we understand an, uh, a certain amount about materials. So we know that... Um, the materials that we use are essentially highly refined from their natural states. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the idea about those materials over a sufficient amount of time returning to those natural states. There are, um, I, I'm, I'm sure there are uh, bacteria and uh, there's more and more life is being discovered that are eating plastics. So, you know, pl- plastics um, have energy in them. Anything that's got energy in it is something that something can eat. 
if it's adapted to. So uh, it, it, it seems, I mean, I guess you'd need uh, some sort of expert on the subject, but it, I mean, the, what you're saying uh, loosely all seems quite reasonable, but I, I think that I think that we do actually have more of an idea. I'm, I'm not sure who I talked to on the subject, though. Mm. I think the question as well that, that Liz mentioned about different planets having different time experiences, I think you'd be hard pressed to say that with the current knowledge that we have. Of course, it could be wrong, but the current knowledge that the speed of light is kind of the ultimate speed limit and you can't get faster than that outside of, you know, quantum entanglement, which is why I say if they if these aliens that come visit us were able to somehow use quantum entanglement or wormholes or some sort of interdimensional travel, then it'd be possible. But I think due to that speed of light and all our physics saying it can't be sped up, you can't go faster than that to the extent that time slows down when you reach it. I think, I don't think you'd be able to cross, you know, light years, uh, millions and millions of light years, any faster than the speed of light so i think the point still stands that if they were traveling from other galaxies and other whatevers they'd still have to abide by that if they were using physical laws they still have to abide by that speed limit so they still would have had to have left hundreds of millions of years ago but again you know as i say you got possible use of quantum entanglement technology i don't know but it's it's there and you've got the you know the, the hypothesis of bending space and creating kind of holes between between them like folding space you know so and then you've got the interdimensional issue as well, which could be an explanation for these abductions and, and visitations. We don't I, I know. I think rather than saying quantum entanglement, which might which might trigger a few people, you might just want to say the infinite improbability drive because people will get a nice feeling from that. They'll go, oh, Douglas <laughs> Adams. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I'm, I think one of the things that really intrigued me, though, Liz, um, from... Um, just the, the little bit of a chat that we had previously was um, I, I I really am quite curious about, I, I really quite strongly believe that we've essentially uh, got a philosophy in this society that we don't recognize as a philosophy. It was really interesting when I was debating Tom Jump. So I had some comments saying, oh, he doesn't have a philosophy. And you just think, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Who is this that you were debating? Oh, Tom! Tom Jump. He's a nice. He's a nice guy. His um, yes. his audience, his audience are a bit less nice. Well, they're, <laughs> some of them. Well, there's a range, right? There were some really lovely people in that audience, but there's also there were, you know. not not the people that watch live and comment live though. Who is he? Um, he's he's an atheist. He's an atheist YouTuber who's who's well known for doing debates, um, on things like modern day debate and and different debating platforms like that. Um, stout atheist and materialist but you know nice enough guy to talk to i always find it interesting that atheism is always brought into this because nothing we have talked about or nothing i think about brings in religion or a god at all like i don't believe in god i've never seen any valid evidence of a religion to me it's a culture i love i'm jewish i love jewish culture yeah but there's i wouldn't consider the bible anything more than fables you know, and so it's just that to me, it's interesting that the two get so intertwined survival of consciousness from a scientific perspective and life on other planets and different forms of consciousness, that consciousness is so tied in and assumed to religion. Like, I understand that a lot of the talk about its life after death, but I'm, I consider myself an atheist or maybe yeah. more of an evidentialist. And I, but I've yet to see any evidence yeah. of God or 
heaven as it's defined. I think people people conflate the two that if you believe in an afterlife, you must necessarily therefore believe in God, you know, this supernatural entity who allows that to happen. Whereas I would say, no, not necessarily. We're just saying that there's a part of nature that's naturally occurring that involves our consciousness that we don't understand that would naturally allow it to continue. How would you define a God? How do I define? I mean, it's difficult. I, swear it... I mean, I suppose you just did really, but I'm, I'm sort of inviting you to flesh it out a bit. Okay, so I'll give two definitions, and one I could believe in, but I just don't like the word God. Right. The way it's defined in any form of organized religion, and it's pretty structurally defined, I don't believe any of that. I could see... He's an angry man in the sky that doesn't like you masturbating. Exactly. It doesn't <laughs> like gay people, doesn't think women yeah, should have choices yeah. over That's our fertility. Yeah. Like, it's not a very likable being, mm. and so... If there is something, and none of this is, as far as I know, I'm. if someone in the comments gets mad at me about this, this is as far as I know. Mm. I've never heard it defined the way maybe I could see, which is, let's say all these lives are us advancing and advancing and getting smarter and wiser and deeper. And of an eventual state of the highest evolved consciousness being. And is there a consciousness being that's so evolved in terms of love and consciousness? And that's one definition that I could think is possible. The other would be if what if one of those consciousness that's evolved in other dimensions we can't even understand decides to try to use this consciousness to create an experience to help other consciousnesses grow through it. And those are planets and human being a human, being a dog, beings maybe in another solar system and maybe this consciousness and each consciousness maybe creates their own universe and the multiverse is a different consciousness being like, wait, this is my project and I'm going to grow consciousness. Which That's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I think happens. That That's my idea of what may happen after physical death based on kind of what people report. It, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it'd be a choice kind of thing. I mean, we don't know, for instance, that the Earth isn't one of these creations of some sort of being that, or you know, one someone like us, a consciousness experience in life, who just kind of, after they lived somewhere, maybe physically or not, they decided that they might want to create this kind of thing as a, as a project either to help other consciousnesses or souls or spirits or whatever you want to say, learn through the physical and maybe that's the God that religions are referring to and, you know, and have, of, of course, grossly mis misunderstood what it was trying to communicate if it was trying to communicate anything at all. We, I mean, we just don't. I mean, again, it's speculation. We don't know. I think we can do better than that. Um, I think that the two ways of looking at the world which make sense are sort of a machine-like approach to the whole of reality or a mind-like approach to the whole of reality. If you've got a mind in which all of reality is in, you know, you kind of, that seems a bit like, like God to me. If you've got a machine, then you've got the burden of how you explain consciousness. So this is why, um, <laughs> this is why there's so much, well, you know what? I mean, I, I kind of felt when we got a little bit of a, chat with chris um that 
yeah, Chris French that that that, it, that we picked up on that. It was this, oh, consciousness is a mystery. Oh, we can't explain it. People have thought about it for ages. It, so, uh, well, it's it's only really a mystery if you're presupposing a materialist philosophy. You know, if you're if I say to you, absolute fact, everything is made of atoms that obey. You know these physical laws now explain consciousness. <laughs> how, how do you know that I've given you a challenge that's even solvable? You know, if the assumptions are wrong, it's not a solvable problem. And I think that's exactly where we are. But yeah, it, it, it's a dichotomy, it seems, between seeing reality as a mind-like thing and as a machine-like thing. Uh, and the machine-like thing does seem to go a long way, but it, it has some real serious problems associated with it. I mean, I don't know. It's it's It really is, you know, when you get to the realms of what, life may be like after physical death you really are kind of mm-hmm. really having to reach out into speculation to some degree because you know even those that have been there have come back so all we can say is what really happens temporarily potentially after you die we don't know what happens when you're permanently dead unless i suppose the only way you could argue some knowledge would be those who come through mediums who have been dead for a long time and and that's kind of what a lot of them seem to say especially from things like astral projection and things they all seem to claim what liz was was suggesting that we kind of are able to make up our own realities and kind of be gods in our own right and you know that would be that would be really good fun that's what i'd do if i could just for a bit of recreation you know I imagine that I've been doing it for such a long time that it's just really nice to have a tightly constrained story for once. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that I think that we can examine where we are right now and extrapolate from there. I really, I really believe in that very strongly. Uh, I believe that we can try and make sense of the world that we find ourselves in, and then just say, well, what seem to be the options? And I'll fully grant that you know that doesn't. That's not the same as, you know, going on a, a trip to the afterlife and then coming back with some <laughs> sort of evidence. Oh, I bought photos. I don't know how I did it, but I did. Right. You know, <laughs> the sort of thing that might change Chris's mind, you know, but um, I don't know. It's it, it does seem to me that I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I've got I've gotten rather, rather happy with it. I, I, I like the sort of mechanistic explanation of reality that we've got but I can see that mm. I'm an exception to that. And you are, you know, consciousness is an exception to that. And I, t- to me, it just seems like there's only one alternative. There's only one logical option, which is to sort of fuse the two things together, you know, to say that, you know, physics is kind of what consciousness does. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not necessarily a case of all one or all the other. It could be, you know, there is a governing mind that governs a universe that is mechanically, yeah, you know, oriented for the physical side of it. But as you say, you can't deny that there is this intangible sense of being that doesn't equate to materialistic kind of philosophies. It wouldn't doesn't work. It's the outlier, you know. And I also think what if like like we sort of I think in a way it's almost a misperception that it's like two worlds, this world and then people say the other side after you die. There's probably infinite states of consciousness some materials some non-material some types of material we can't begin to understand like the people who have ndes are probably just going to one small dimensional experience and then here is one small dimensional experience and maybe there's multiple if we are going to use again i hate the word god but like a big consciousness that creates this universe maybe 
they've created a couple dimensions and others are creating completely different dimensions of consciousness that we can't even understand. I mean, I tend to think it's much vaster than we think. And I think it's a misconception to be like, you're here and you die. And that's like, those are the only two forms of consciousness. And my guess is there's so many and probably types of materialism experiences that we can't even begin to understand and non-material experiences we can't begin to understand and other forms of material that responds very differently. You know, the way they say like the fourth dimension responds differently or the fifth dimension. You know, if you watch videos on string theory and how the material responds in those dimensions, like there's probably a lot of that, that we, that have forms of consciousness that we, you know, couldn't understand. Like if anyone's watched the movie Flatliners or not flat, flat, no, Flatland, Flatland, Flatliners is a sci-fi Flatland where it shows like an experience of what it would be to live as a conscious one dimensional or two dimensional or three dimensional. And then sort of can get into four dimensional, but you really can't because that's pure fantasy because we don't know it. Yeah. yeah. And you know, you, you call it right because there are several testimonies that mention different experiences of consciousness. Unfortunately, that it's completely beyond language to explain. So which would make sense, you know, trying to be a two dimensional person explaining what up is, it'd be all, you know, pretty much impossible because we don't have that frame of reference or the language to, to describe it, which is why so many near-death experiences and, and out-of-body experiences are explorers and even psychedelic explorers come back and say, I, I, I experienced this. I can't explain what it was. It was beyond life and consciousness as you understand it, but that's as far as I can tell you. So it's difficult, you know, to, to really pinpoint down what we mean when we say different levels of consciousness. Because I think, when we was it Chris French who mentioned you know even terms like higher levels of consciousness? What does that mean? Does it mean being more aware of things? Does it mean being more intelligent than other people? And for someone who hasn't had these higher experiences of consciousness, you know, we can't understand. But those that do say no, it's far far beyond just that. You know, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to attribute the phrase higher to them. Um, I wouldn't like to impose a value judgment like that. Mm. Um, but as, as someone who sort of had um, at first very, you know, some amazing experiences, just well, or in particular, an amazing experience meditating. And then I went on to try psychedelics after that. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, they are. There's a certain ineffable quality to them. There's something that you experience that you can't put into the language of everyday living. So I can imagine, you know, if, if you had that sort of experience through meditation and perhaps through psychedelics, which is still very much, I imagine close to kind of physical consciousness. Once you get out of that level, I wonder how ineffable, how ineffable, you know, those sort of experiences must be once you've completely detached from physical. If indeed we do detach. The thing is, there's a, there's a real problem here that we, we do need to bring up because the mater- material stuff is only defined by the fact that we experience it. And I suppose you could throw in another qualifier that it seems to behave in uh, mathematically predictable ways. Right? So uh, all that we call physical could be a computer simulation, for example. So it has no real substance to it. It's just an experience that we have that is in some way predictable. Well, 
<laughs> the only way that I can really think of getting something that is uh, kind of immaterial is that it either doesn't represent it to itself to you um, as, as a sort of a, almost like a substance or, or an experience, but I suppose it, it, you could have something that's um, not predictable that does stuff when you think it should. Like, do you know what I mean? That might respond to your thoughts, something like that. I, I have a hard time trying to imagine what immaterial might be. What immaterial, con like non-material consciousness might be, you mean? Or Well, well, I'd, I'd call consciousness, I'd, I'd call consciousness non-material only for the fact that it, <laughs> if if our if our utterances of being conscious were reducible to mathematical laws, there'd be no need for the consciousness anymore. Uh, the, so I accept that. I, I don't think I'd go all the way as to say that consciousness is immaterial in the sense that it's clearly participating in a material process, and anything that's participating in a material process. I mean, how far can you go with the label of material? You, you could you could in principle encompass everything, and many people do. Like if you're a materialist, you naturally use the word material to encompass everything. It's just, I, I'm an everythingist. I believe everything is in everything. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, it, it, some driving out here though. What I think is consistently interesting is that we have these laws of the universe mathematically and scientifically. And when we start going smaller and smaller and smaller in quantum physics, the laws break down and stop applying. And then with mathematics, when we start going further and further. Um, I, I don't know enough mathematics to explain this further, but essentially numbers and mathematical laws start breaking down and stop becoming so pure in one answer, the way math always gives one answer and a definite, definitive answer. And apparently as you go further and further with mathematics, that stops working and you can't get mathematical answers and you have to bring in imaginary numbers, which are types of like one example is like negative fractions and things that just don't make sense. And they, you just have to. Yeah. Yeah. Negative uh, square roots and things. Yeah. And, uh, but like square roots that don't work of like negative numbers. Like, I don't know things get a bit weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to try to find the quote I read. Yeah. That just the laws of everything that holds together from, you know, materialism and physics to mathematics work within a set frame and when you start going past that they all start breaking down i think that's so interesting i i think that that would definitely be a disputed point i think that there would be people who would say that no 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 no, no. there's there's nothing that breaks down but I, I i kind of want to so my own understanding of sort of what you're getting at uh would be the uncertainty principles um uh, the idea of um quantum superpositions and things like that so you what you're outlining here is, um, I suppose we just need to go into sort of quantum mechanics. It's just that idea that there are all sorts of ways that a particular atom or any part of the universe could be, you know, next. And um, that a sense of all those possible futures, or as Sean Carroll would, Sean Carroll would see them as actual worlds. There's many real actual worlds. Mm, yeah. One for each potential, but we can certainly say that they're you know they're, they're possible ones, um, and we find ourselves in just one, right? So we've got some sort of collapse of what's possible into what's actual. So physics isn't a framework really 
for prescribing uh, an exact outcome, and it never has been. But on average, that works just fine if you're building a bridge. So we don't need to worry about it too much, or you're flying a plane. Um, the issue is more that there are all these possibilities. And I mean, it strikes me as very it strikes me as very amusing because that's that seems to be exactly what we're really looking for for minds to do. We we'd like to think that we can make choices, but we've got a physical world that naively looks like we can't make them. But if you know it better, then we've got all these possible worlds. So it, it seems quite reasonable to me that um, this unexplained action of consciousness to talk about itself we may well find the answer in this sort of quantum mechanical realm purely for the fact that where else would we look for it? There isn't a reasonable other place to look for it by what we know at the moment. And I mean, quantum physics is is a very widely attacked subject, especially when it's used in like quantum mysticism with Deepak Chopra and folks like that. So I, I wonder what you think about kind of, it's, I mean, the, the most well-known in quantum physics is the double slit, isn't it? And the interpretations that arise from that is widely contested as to whether it suggests the Copenhagen interpretation that consciousness and you know human consciousness is responsible for the collapse of the wave function, which means it basically. I th- I think that would be more like um, there were there were early quantum mechanical pioneers who believed that to be the case. I think Wigner was one of them, but uh, I, I, my understanding of Copenhagen from someone who did physics because I like these sorts of chats, was that he said it was random. It was just purely random as to what collapses, what it collapses into. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I, I always, uh, I'm not 100% familiar with the different, inter- you, you got the Copenhagen and the Van Neumann as well, didn't you? But essentially the, the, the point that's contested, whatever the theory is, or whichever interpretation it is, is that, you know, the, does our watching something ch- uh, determine something collapsing or not so does it determine whether the particle comes out of superposition or not is is our measurement of it the and our consciousness of it the determining factor you know and then from there you you begin to explore well then does that mean that all of reality is dependent on on being there to to witness it you know if you're if i'm not looking at my seeking eye sign and nobody else is does it still exist or does it only exist when someone's looking at it you know And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. This week's question is from Amy R. Hi, Amy. Thanks for reaching out. And Amy wants to know, are there any special tips I have when booking a medium reading? I have written about this some on my website, and this is a popular question, so I will definitely be addressing this more in the future. Okay, Amy, I have a lot, so I'll stick with a main one which I say is use a fake name, hide your identity, have a friend pay with their credit card or PayPal and just pay them back. Most of the mediums I've encountered are honest, although not all. But if you don't hide your identity, I think you'll just always wonder. The good ones won't be offended if they find out you did that. They'll appreciate that you were really thorough and careful and give them a chance to prove that they really are getting valid information. So good luck, Amy. Reach out. Let us know how your reading goes. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net. 
and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. As I'm sure you've heard, the Supreme Court in the United States just overturned Roe v. Wade, which protects a woman's right to have an abortion if she chooses. Now it's illegal in some of our states. If anyone is looking to obtain an abortion and you live in a state where it's illegal, you can check the following sites. I suggest using a VPN, virtual private network, which hides your identity on your computer or phone. These are the sites, womenonwaves.org, womenonweb.org, aidaccess.org, plancpills.org, wholewomanshealth.com, abortionfunds.org, and of course, Planned Parenthood. I linked all of them on our Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore, and they're saved in our stories. These are also great places to donate and see if they need any help. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. You, you got. You see, this is a whole. Um, this is a whole Schrodinger's cat problem. But the cat's an observer as well, right? That's what I always say about Schrodinger's cat. It's the cat's there. It's a <laughs> well, conscious, you know? complex being. <laughs> I think I probably picked it up mm. off you, Liz. But then actually. I suppose to go. Yeah. I suppose to I go further, though, if we then, <laughs> if we then implore a god, add a god into it, then why would anything ever be in superposition? Because a god who's all all envisioning and can see you know everything what's the word omnipotent or omnipresent or whatever would always be observing everything so there would never be anything in a superposition that's assuming what a god is like if you well, made a little experiment <laughs> universe yeah. like a mini one are you always observing every aspect of it this is so philosophical now there there's like zero evidence for anything i'm going to be saying now so i'm just going to pure philosophy there's a god let's say they've like created it the way maybe we would create like a little ant farm i mean how you're not always observing it i don't know i mean that's just we're assuming we know what a god like consciousness would be and what the experience would be like and we have no idea i mean maybe they create something and then go do something else and let, you know i mean we just don't know see i think i think that's kind of where the religious idea of god breaks down with the omnipotent because by definition that god would always be everywhere and would indeed be everything well i don't think that does break down though no. i think it, it, if anything that's helpful um so sort of the whole idea of um 
one consciousness subjectively experiencing itself, then you know you get to be you you get to live the experience of the life of the person who can't lift the rock, and you get to live the experience of the life of the person who can lift the rock. You can do both things, you know, both the limitations and the power. But it's only by fracturing yourself and going down all of those routes. And and this sort of ties back to what we were saying earlier. I think there's this really. I'm sorry if I've deviated it from anyone from away from their thoughts, but this one's been just a, it's been brewing for a while. This one uh, it's so my, my problem with the, so I like to look at it like this. How, how, how could there not be something that we could define as a God? How could there not? So how could we, how could we affirm something like atheism? Right. Um, Cause it's an interesting exercise and uh, I'm, I'm going to work on this. Cause I'm, 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 I'm not sure how you'd do it. There's the, the problem that you've got, uh, from a certain point of view, is that if you've got a system, two systems interacting with each other, right? Well, is the distinction that those are two systems just arbitrary? And if they're interacting with each other, you could call the whole of that one system. Do you see what I'm driving at? No, not really. (laughs) Not exactly. I mean, the thing I'm feeling like inclined to respond to, and then I'd like you to explain it further, as you said, how do you prove atheism? I mean, in my sense, and this is a cliche line that I know a lot of people like parapsychologists will get irritated with, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. <laughs> I mean, the God yeah. claim of a God is the extraordinary claim. Afterlife that our consciousness survives is the extraordinary claim. And but I have come to conclude that I think there's extraordinary evidence, a preponderance of it. That's why I've come to think that there is we do. Uh, you know, you're claiming there's a God. I mean, you could claim that there's a big blue bear in the sky that's like gives kids ice cream, and you know, that will come down, like give everyone who passes away ice cream. I mean, and now, OK, prove that's not true. And it's invisible. And it gives ice cream to children every night while they're sleeping. They go to this big blue bear and then it wipes their memory of it. I mean, prove that's not true. You know, so to me, I'm like, you can do that with anything. That's that's fair enough, but then you you can always well you can do it the other way around as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, the claim the claim being non conscious matter generates consciousness. Yeah. That's assumed. That's that's taken as fact. Yeah. That's a pretty extraordinary claim. I mean, without I mean, it's it's the one. Give give us one free miracle, we'll explain the rest. You know, so we've got a bunch of neurons which are matter. A bunch of chemicals, which are matter, a bunch of electricity, which is electrons, which is matter, uh, none of which are conscious. They're all just. A- and I'm assuming these have all just obeyed laws. We can account for all of the actions of this stuff by just laws. Yeah. Yeah. And we've put them in a big goopy mess. Some sort of magic happens and we're aware. And to me, that's that's an extraordinary claim. Yeah, that's the problem. It's the magic. Yeah, it's a, that's the extraordinary claim. That's it. Yeah. So, I mean, the people that say that, the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. First of all, you're, you're kind of, it's going to be pretty subjective what's extraordinary and, and why the standard of evidence changes on any given kind of phenomena. But also, they, they don't consider what they are taking as right. true. Yeah. And that their claims are equally as unsupported and require just as much evidence of the same quality. Yeah. I agree with that. But I guess I think if we're going to take something out of the realm of philosophy, and possibility and worthy of discussion into most likely true. Because I don't think we should say anything's 100% true. You need concrete evidence. And in my 
of all of this, what you said about the brain just creating consciousness. Yeah, that that's extraordinary claim too. And of those two extraordinary claims, like we are conscious in these complex beings that in and of itself is both true and extraordinary. So there's a lot more valid evidence that shows that our consciousness is survives in certain ways and is not just created by a brain from like the Jim Tucker research to near death experiences to mediumship, that there's something more complex. And then to take it all the way to a God is like 20 steps down the line. I mean, that there's no evidence of that. That is philosophy. And that's taking, taking a lot of liberties with this evidence. So you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that, but don't start saying it's fact. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that there is evidence to support a God in people's personal experiences in the millions and whatever. But the thing is, psychological arguments are much more likely than, than it being a God, you know, whereas when you have things... Well, there's not extraordinary evidence. No. There could be some evidence, some anecdotal evidence, maybe even a little more than anecdotal. But the fact that we're taking that and defining it as a god, when maybe it's just higher levels of consciousness, maybe it's people we love who've been, you know, great, great grandparents have been deceased and watching over us. And we make it into this, it's over defining in a factual sense. And again, like, I think this is where we have to have a line between what's science and what's philosophy, you know, because you can't. You can't call things facts when you're taking like 10 step of interpretation, but you can say maybe, and it's worthy, you know, it's worth philosophizing and there's a reason I can philosophize, but you can't say it's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, I mean, so I, I like to be able to take lots of different perspectives, challenge the views that I've got. I, I think one of the things that I found very, uh, an amusing idea though, is that I mean, I do like going to where atheist meetups. And then there's this 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 part of me that wants to go. Oh, well, I couldn't be an atheist because I believe in myself, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but I think I think that's really that's where it does get really interesting, though. I think if you've got the idea of an all-powerful, all-knowing God, just 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 putting it out there as an idea, then. If you're separate from that God, what? Well, how does that work? I mean, the God wouldn't have the power to make you do something, so it wouldn't be all powerful. And what would God have? I mean, God would in that situation would have to know what you were thinking. What it, what it felt like to be you, the direct experience of being you. So would that be like a copy of you? That seems weird. And how would he do that for all eight billion people at the same time? You know. So are there like copies of these? I mean, the simple solution is just to say that, you know, just to throw in the towel and say that, you know, your reality itself, you are God. and That's how it works. You just experience all these different things in your own creation. There is an interesting story I read. I mean, it's interesting philosophically and it's fantasy. It's not trying to make claims of any truth, but it's called The Egg. It was just. Yes. A... Oh, I love that. Yeah, I know The Egg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll explain it if any <laughs> listeners don't know it. And essentially it's someone dies and they're met with someone and they're like, are you God? And they were like, well, I could basically say that. And they're like, now, well, you'll understand it all one day, but you're going to go back now and be somebody else in a reincarnation. But apparently it's just this one consciousness, they're like, the God says to them, it's you, it's only you, you are going to be every single human on earth. And they're like, I 
Hitler, like everyone, from, and they were like, you've been Hitler, you were also the people he killed, you're the people who saved the world, you are every single one. And they're like, that's how you eventually, you're my child, and you're going, this is what you do to eventually become a god, you live all these lives, and then you become a god, and the god's like, that's what I once did, and I guess the thought was, there's multiple gods doing these little universes and one growing their one child or maybe their two that get to be every single person in the earth to become a god and i thought i thought that was just a really cool story yeah yeah probably not the best story you've ever read though there, there was that one about the family of foxes that you said was the best book you've ever read of your life although it hasn't actually available oh, yeah yet. <laughs> it's not available it's literally the best book i've ever read about a family of foxes <laughs> written by darren McEnany. it was it was good and actually i really it made you it. it made you miss a bus stop or a train stop didn't it <laughs> I, I missed my train stop because I was absorbed in it. And then I was like, oh, wait, where am I? And I ridden <laughs> past my stop. So it was good. And next I'm reading Darren's autobiography. Oh, yeah. That's probably never going to get finished, though, in, in, in honesty. But I don't know. Really? Okay. Yeah. But then you've got yours as well, your autobiography, which is coming out. At some, when's that coming? You know, it's quite it's coming out really soon. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if it's exactly autobiography, but it's my personal it's, exploration of yeah. evidence of an afterlife. Mm. But It'll be good. It doesn't get too much into my personal life. I'm mm. not one for sharing that no, stuff, no. but yeah. All right, talk me down. How am I not God? <laughs> How are you not God? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I want the best Cure COVID and kill Trump. <laughs> yeah. Well... <laughs> I well, think I will. don't don't just, just uh, you know just don't make killing Trump top on your list. First, get rid of all the cancer in children and um, yes. yeah, all, all the debilitating diseases yeah. for newborns right. and puppies and and everybody. Really, we don't need diseases. They they. Uh, I mean, if we do need diseases, let them go and survive on on vegetation or something that doesn't feel pain. You know, as far as we know, as far as we know, which is a good point. Now, I, I is it reasonable though? No, for me to say that. <laughs> I was, but in this particular lifetime, I'm limited by this particular experience. Yeah, yeah. But then the only problem would that is make what I'm saying invalid in any way. Well, I mean, the problem is, is how would you? Would it? Yeah, that would. Oh, you must tell me that. Yeah, how would that work? How would I think? I mean, again, this is. I mean, how would how would that work? How would it make it invalid? No, it validates. If, yeah, if you say you're a god and limited, I mean, there's a lot of philosophical yeah. things we can get to. The, that story I just told, the egg, or God mm. is there constantly mm. being like, hmm, I want to go try human experiences so I can understand it. I want to do the full experience and happens to be you. I mean, maybe they pick them. Yeah. I suppose the, the pro problem is how would you then, how would you show that that is the case yeah because as you say you it'd be unfalsifiable at least from our scientific perspective i don't see how anyone could say that they weren't god just playing around with the idea here i mean how would you know if we're getting into philosophy mm. and not science then, I mean, yeah it's exactly you know yeah because i mean you know falsifiability is important i mean there's a guy i know nice guy i don't agree with him on on the vaccine things he's very anti-vax um and he he made his claim unfalsifiable because i mean I, i'm sending him things like 
Um, and he could be right. I doubt it, but it could be. And I'm sending him things like Nature and The Lancet. And his response is that it's all all these documents are manipulated by Big Pharma and things. And I'm saying, but that then makes it unfortifiable because because I can't prove that wrong, you know. So that's not a good position to have. So I suppose, you know, falsifiability is an important thing in science. In philosophy, then I don't really know. But in principle, you know. I think I can turn the tables on that. I think there's there's two ideas, really, aren't there? And I think this is where it gets more interesting. So, I mean, you know, if the other thing wasn't interesting enough. Um, if, if you're not going to be everything, there has to be some sort of fundamental separation of what you are, right? So you've got problems with that. So you've got problems of creation and destruction. If you, if you're not, if you're not infinite or if there aren't, if they, no, let's put it another way. If there aren't, if you don't have boundaries as to your start and your end and where you can go, well, aren't you everywhere? <laughs> so I, I think, I think that the, if you, if you want to be anti-God, then creating boundaries is a good way of doing it and I, I don't think there's any accident whatsoever in a sense that um you know sort of almost a cliche of atheism you know you want to explain consciousness at the last possible moment you know not conscious not conscious not conscious oh i don't know what happened there oh we'll promise we'll figure it out later you know <laughs> it's um yeah, it's it's this sort of if you're at unity with everything, then I don't see how you could be anything other than some conception of God. But if there is a part, if if you have boundaries, if you terminate somewhere, then that would be completely in keeping and coherent with the idea that you weren't. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you could say that we're certainly, definitely a part of a, some form of unity because you know, even physically, mm, yeah, if. If if they're right in saying that there is no, it's the paranormal aspect of God that the atheists don't agree with, and yeah. um, which I would claim isn't paranormal. It's just nature that isn't yet discovered. Um, but it's you know you could say that yes, we're certainly part of everything, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're a god because every cell and every atom in our body was integrated with everything at one point. You know, in the Big Bang, theoretically. Well, it still is. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. No, that's that's the problem, right? If if we have an integrated approach to reality, if we want to think of everything as a monism, right, just one thing, then um, I think that, and I know what you're getting at. I, I think that you inevitably tend towards some sort of conception of God. Um, I, I love the Alan Watts stuff. I mean, that's really fascinating and interesting. They're sort of, um, I mean, I, I made Alan Watts uh, the way he the what? Oh, Alan Watts. I don't really know. Oh, you're in for a treat there, I think. Okay, I'm excited. Let's hear. Right. Um, there, there, there is. There are many, many Alan Watts YouTube uh, videos, um, essentially with recordings of Alan Watts, and someone put some video to it. But um, he's, he's very popular. And he... Um, he's dead, by the way. His character has left the game. <laughs> um, he... He talks about the idea that if you were God, that you might do all the things that you want to do. You might imagine all sorts of things that you want and then just have them straight away. He sort of leads up to this idea that after a while of having that, you'd be quite bored with that. You'd want some sort of challenge where 
you didn't feel so in control of it. So over time, you'd progress towards creating this. And putting yourself in the middle of it. And he says it in a more elegant way than I do. That makes sense. I always thought from like, I was even going to say what's interesting is what you're talking about is being a god sounds so lonely and boring unless there's a bunch of other gods. But if you're just like by yourself and the creator of the universe, like uh, to me, that sounds horrible. It, I mean, it, it does from a, from a human point of view. Yeah, exactly. From a human point of view. I mean, I felt this way on psychedelics though. What way? Well, I mean, I, I, I felt the sense of just being the only thing that was, but I mean, it's not really a problem. I mean, all the all the things that I get that make me feel not alone are still real. Um, and if you want to categorize that as one being that's playing with itself for eternity, ah, whatever, I'm I'm fine with that. You know? well, it's a different perspective, isn't it? When when you're in that sort of, I mean, was that that was dimethyltryptamine, wasn't it? Or what? That was one of them. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. No, no, you you you've actually yeah you. <laughs> Yeah. Name the trip. <laughs> yes, you're right, Darren. <laughs> yes, well indeed, done. Indeed. I don't know how you knew, but yes. It's always DMT with these sort of things, isn't it? I mean, or LSD to some lesser extent, but the, the most popular one that people use to actually explore this stuff seems to be, is it, I don't know the technical terms, but some form of DMT. Were you going to say 5-MEO DMT? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have not tried that. No, I would always be too frightened to try any psychedelic. Yeah, I've never tried any. I'm curious to, but I don't know if I ever will. I'm kind of frightened as well, even though I'm very curious to do it. Yeah, it's a catch-22, isn't it? I want to have done it. I don't want to do it, if that makes sense. <laughs> I'd like to tell you in some sense um, that there aren't any risks and that you'll be fine. But it would seem from experience and knowledge that that's not always the case for everyone. So I think it's something that... Um, I mean, physiologically, my understanding is they are very safe if you're getting what you think you're getting, which is a huge if. But um, from a point of view of the harm that you might do to yourself, well, there is that's that's a, that's something that's needs to be taken seriously. Um, instead of like a hippie wonderland, uh, I suppose one might imagine that there would be people roaming the streets. You know, uh, <laughs> skipping along, handing out psychedelics. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, there's responsibility that comes along with that. There is. I guess I'm trying to get it more naturally. Like I'm trying to do out of body exercises, and I haven't. Yes, that's that's the way I'd want to do it. As far as I know, I mean, there's some things I think I've maybe somewhat succeeded, but nothing drastic. Like I felt like buzzes above my body. I had a few dreams that make me wonder. And then holotropic breath work. That's I've tried that once and I would like to. Oh, that's it. That's supposed to be a good one. Yeah, I want to go back. Like I tried it short, you know, a couple of years ago and then I was like, oh, I'll try it again. And then obviously with COVID, I'm not going to be in a room full of breathing people. But I could, I'll be in a room with people just so long as they're not breathing. <laughs> not breathing. Yeah. Go to an underwater party. Not breathing. <laughs> People just holding their breath. I mean, I guess I was going to gym. I'm going to go back to the gym now that I'm healthy. I mean, I guess I feel pretty safe. I'm boosted and had COVID. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think yeah. I, I agree. You know, if I ever have some sort of trip like that, I'd rather it come organically, you know, through meditation or through some natural means like that. 
I'd be too I'd be too wimpy to actually take anything. I think I mean I kind of have said I want to, but again, like I said, I want to have had the experience, but I don't want to actually do it. And yeah, Matthew, you said you had some crazy profound experience doing it though. What was that? Oh gosh, we're back to the ineffable, aren't we? If you don't mind sharing, I mean No, I I, I can try. Um I think I went into it um really trying to see see what was true. Um, that was a, so I did the same thing with meditation. So I started off with meditation. I felt that that was really the way to go. I was kind of curious about DMT and things like that from listening to Joe Rogan, people like that. And, um, but I thought, well, you don't want to be in the situation where someone goes, well, the reason that you had this meditative experience is because it's just regurgitating what you had in your psychedelic experience. And I'm like, yeah, I really don't want that. No, no. Okay. We're going to have to do the gonna have to do this the meditation first so i just did that every day uh 20 to 30 minutes usually i think it was 30 minutes each day it, it's sort of like um it, it's it's no more difficult in a sense in a sense i say than watching a television program every day just it's fine and um the key thing is keeping it going and not worrying if you think because the first time i was did i do that right was that meditation i have no idea <laughs> But you, you keep doing it. And the technique that I was using, because, um, I mean, it's just, you know, this is the thing that really just really, you could say, bakes my doodle. Um, it, it amuses me. I mean, it sort of like just tells me that these people don't seem to get me, uh, to know me at all. Um, I am very suspicious about all sorts of religious and sort of spiritual ideas and approach them tentatively, uh, sometimes with a spiky thing, with a point. And, with the meditation in particular, because I've got knowledge of how hypnosis works, the last thing that I wanted to do was put on um, some spiritual teachers, you know, relaxing musical 30 minutes where they guide you through a meditation. I know guided meditation and a hypnosis. Well, what's the difference? As far as I can see, you know, there's a big blur between those things. So, yeah, I mean, you you could you could play something back and then you could have an experience of this or that. I mean, it depends what the person's saying. So for me, um, the exploration of mind had to be something done in uh, sort of emptiness and solitude. It's sort of like poking at awareness itself by just letting go of everything else. Um, and it took three months of doing that before I had... Well, what yeah, I could only describe as a revelatory experience. Um, and it was, uh, I, I can put it into words, but it's not going to, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a very, very, very superficial, shallow copy of the actual experience. Um, and I was looking for myself, right? I was looking for myself and I found, because this is a strange thing. If you, if you let go of your thoughts all the time, the, the, you, you, you almost like dive deeper into more interesting thoughts. And all the superficial thoughts quieten down. So there's that odd paradox of sometimes if you're meditating, it's not actually a bad thing to, you know, if you've had your mind empty for some time and something really interesting comes up, you know, you don't have to let it go. It's it's one of those ones. And so sometimes when I was practicing meditation, I would have days where I was always letting go of thoughts. And sometimes it would be, I'd, I'd let go of them for the start and then I'd see what happened. In any case... <clears throat> I, I was looking for my, in this particular experience, I was sort of looking for myself and I found myself um, seeing 
uh, things like my brain. And I was thinking, where's me? I, I can't see me in here. And I, I saw sort of the level of tissue in my brain. Uh, and so I can't see me here either. And then I was looking at, um, you know, the, the, um, the cells themselves. And then I couldn't, I couldn't see. I'm not here. No, no, no. Okay. So, and then I sort of went deeper than that. And I was looking at sort of the molecules and chemicals and all the chemical machinery that goes on in cells. And I'm like, not here either. <laughs> and it just kept going deeper and sort of like zooming into reality. And uh, it kind of got to um, sort of this sort of somewhat visualization of sort of the quantum foam by the time that you've got past fundamental particles. And it was because I didn't see myself there. The next thing was really interesting. I was sort of like, oh, it was this sense of, oh, my God, I'm underneath all of this. <laughs> but that's a very poor way of communicating it, just saying that. It was a real felt sense uh, of revelation. And what's what <clears throat> what's been really amusing about it is that after that, I've done so much digging around, analysing, thinking, rationalising. It's hard to get away from. Um, one of the most interesting models that we have in science today is this whole idea that you've got physics at the bottom level, you've got chemistry, and then on top of chemistry, you've got biology. You've got a sort of a layered approach of, um, of emergence. And uh, what was really interesting about this revelatory experience is it pointed me in the correct direction. <laughs> It, it, it's sort of you, you've got this problem that if you want to make something happen in an emergent system you have to get to the bottom right it, anything above that is purely derivative so yeah i mean consciousness now you, you can flip that so you've you've almost got a circle of causality and consciousness has to be part of it you know, you can undo the, the concept of you being at the bottom of it from a rational point of view. Uh, you can throw doubt as to whether the material world is primary or your primary or who the, who the hell knows what's going on. But the, the fact that I can, I mean, this is the thing that, that all the analysis of all the YouTube videos that I watched, everything, the one thing that's missing in the world right now is a simple recognition that for us to talk about consciousness to each other through the material world is proof of mind over matter. It's what I was trying to tell Chris. It's like, <laughs> you don't need to look very far, Chris. I, I get it. And I, 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 I admit some concessions, right? So the concessions would be something like this. As far as I know, I can only reasonably assert that my consciousness affects my brain. But what I try to get across to Chris is, wouldn't that be weird if my consciousness is all over my brain? but it can't leak out at the sides. Like if your skull was able to somehow contain this mysterious conscious force that's having this whole brain effect and it, it just kind of gets to the wall of your head and goes, oh, it has to avoid going past that. <laughs> it seems a bit weird. I guess I would say either is equally weird. Like, I don't think one explanation is weirder than the other, that, that consciousness is just created by this mass of brains, especially like, Consciousness is so complex. It's not just this detached mathematical perceptions. It's like emotional and love and confusing and complicated and deep. And I mean, but that's no weirder 
than that it's created not from the brain and downloaded. Both are equally weird to me. There just seems to be a lot more evidence for one way than the other, which is one is more obvious on the surface and that it's created by the brain to me is more obvious on the surface. And once you dig into the evidence that it's um, created non-locally and downloaded by the brain and continues after a bodily death is significantly backed up by more evidence. I think I can help here. Let's play the game. Let's let's play the game where the materialists are right. Okay. Okay. So we're going to play the game. The materialists are right or the physicalists yeah. are right. Okay. So I tell you that it feels like something to be me. What's the source of that comment? The source of that is all the neurons mm. in your brain moving around and the sensations and creating right. it. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah. I, I From the materialist perspective. Yeah. 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 But okay. Um, so there's a conflation going on here. Uh, the conflation is that if we talk about consciousness as just being performative, as in just doing stuff, that's okay. Right. So if you imagine that it, you didn't really fit, it didn't really feel like anything to be you. But we're all philosophical zombies, right? It doesn't feel like anything to be any of us. None of us have any consciousness, but we're still doing stuff, right? We imagine that was the case. Then materialism would be true. I mean, it would it would add up. It would make sense. What do you mean, like robots? Yeah. Like un like we're still aware, no. but we don't have no, emotions, no. We... or just that we're like literally like robots robots that do all the things that humans do. So a philosophical zombie is where it doesn't feel like anything to be that zombie, but it will still have a conversation with you about consciousness. That in principle, that's the... But it's not, is it aware in any way? Is it aware? No. Like, because we could have awareness without the rich experience of it, without emotions or caring or attachment. No, okay. it's it's not. It It just mimics being aware. It's not aware, but it would say that it was. So that's the that's what materialism really gives you. It, you could have, in principle, brains that would do all these behaviours because that's all that science touches is behaviours because that's only behaviours that really are testable. Um, that's the limitation. Uh, but, in, in, you know, it's important to note. So all of those neurons and all of those... <laughs> Oh, right. I've got another thing that might help here. Got another thing that might help. I, I, I will knit these back together, but there's another important thing about causality we need to explore. I'm driving down the road. I park my car, go to my friend's house, <clears throat> have a nice night, get out to my car. It's a little bit late now. Need to get back home, go to start the car and it won't start. <laughs> I, I've got some sort of um, breakdown cover. The guy comes out takes a look at it and he says, ah, it's your battery. It's the battery's fault. They have two cells that fuse together. Uh, you've got a short circuit in your battery. It's the battery's fault. Is it really the battery's fault? It's, it's whoever made the battery. No, I mean, it could be rain got into it and corroded it. It could have been so many things. We don't know. We don't, we just That's where it's showing up. Does the battery have the free... The, Dar Darren's got it. It's the idea... It's a useful fiction to explain things in that way. 
It helps us understand things, but it's anthropomorphizing things. We project the agency that we have onto the environment to explain things in helpful stories. It was the battery's fault that it packed up, right? It's not really the battery's fault. We're using the word fault. Yeah, but the ba- the battery didn't decide. The battery didn't decide that, ah, oh, you know, I'm fed up of Matthew. He takes me for granted. I'm just, pfft, I'm going to short circuit. The battery didn't do that. The battery hasn't got any free will. So... The problem is that you almost have like an infinite chain of of um, of uh, recursion downwards from that point because you could say, well, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the battery's fault; it was the person who designed the battery. And then you could say, well, it wasn't their fault; they were being pushed by their boss. And you could say it wasn't the boss's fault, and you just all the way along, right? At, at some point. Um, you, you can sort of chain these things until you just, I don't know, you get to the big bang. <laughs> Whose fault is that? It's its its a little bit tricky. So the problem that we've got is that when we say that it feels like something to be us, we live out this story. Almost certainly you do if you're an atheist as well. You know, um, stereotypically, I mean, you know. Um, we live out this story that there is a subjective experience that has the power to tell other people that it's a subjective experience. Uh, That hurt me. And you sort of know that you've hurt in the past. You know what that feels like. You're modeling everything in terms of your own conscious experience. You're modeling everything as you're a subject having an experience. In the materialist model, this completely breaks down. And this would be uh, the philosophy of illusionism. It's the idea is we think we've got consciousness. We think it feels like something to be us. It doesn't really. There's no subjective experience to be having the experiences. And that's the position of someone like Daniel Dennett. But if we think it feels like... but th- th- Which is difficult to reconcile. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's, diff- difficult to rec- it's difficult to reconcile it because you can't deny... You can't deny that you have the experience of something. Whatever you experience or whatever you believe yourself to be could be illusionary. You know, I'm seeing a guitar pick here that might not exist. But what I can't deny is that there is something behind what I'm behind the me that's seeing it because it's either on or it's off. There's no illusory kind of semi semi aware or not. You're either aware or not. So Philip Goff would say, yeah, consciousness can't be vague or at least you can't make sense of it in vague terms it has to be there or not can't be partial um yeah i mean i mean i'm i'm agreeing with you completely but we're still presupposing a subjective experience now the moment that we oh i was just gonna say though if someone's saying we are imagining consciousness and we're not really conscious then what is conscious what would be what would it because i mean what would be being more conscious than us like then that essentially means consciousness doesn't exist unless they can say what would be actually being conscious compared to us yeah well i mean the question is are you aware not are you aware of something in particular but are you aware of anything if your answer is yes well that's by definition you're conscious then uh, there's a problem with that though um see i could i could create a computer program um that would know things so it would hold variables for different values and things like that and it, I could make something, you know, in software respond to its environment. You might say that it was aware of something. There really is 
no word that can't be weaseled around here that really gives us a categoric definition of consciousness, which is the problem. Really, the only way that people really get it is by looking in inside themselves and having that recognition of their own existence, which is a bit weird and interesting. And and that's true because it's just an assumption. Like, I know I'm conscious right. and I'm assuming you guys are experiencing it the same way I do as you're different some because yeah. we're all different. Yeah. But for all I know, like I'm the only, which is such a lonely. We could be figments of your imagination. Yeah. I could be the only one who's conscious and I could have made all you guys up or I could be, you know, in a matrix computer simulation. There could be like five people that are all in compute in the whole universe that are all computer like, being computer computer simulated and um, yeah and we're all npcs i'm here watching millions of people when reality there's like only five of us in that matrix you know so the only thing i can factually know like i have no doubt i'm conscious i assume you guys are but you can't <laughs> and you that. could say the same mm. that's the thing mm. yeah but one of this is a wonderful thing right it's self-evident to someone who can see themselves well enough but this whole idea of a subject that experiences um, isn't supported inside a materialistic paradigm. Not really. I mean, you can force it in there somehow. So you could say that everything that happened up until the moment that humans got consciousness, let's just keep it simple. I know it's more complicated than that. Cells probably have consciousness, but just to keep it simple, right? Just to keep it simple. We'll say, you know, um, that, the only thing that governed the motion of things in the universe up until the point where humans became consciousness humans became conscious was the laws of physics everything was exact mathematical precise everything was told where to go what to do and you know it it was all predicted by these equations of motion however however <laughs> as soon as consciousness popped into existence of human beings then when they said it felt like something to be them, consciousness was the cause of that. So essentially what we're talking about is this giant machine that was working like clockwork and then just farted out a ghost and the ghost starts tinkering with it. And that is ultimately the reason why I find materialism absurd. It is, it is that, that experience of being aware that does break everything else down, doesn't it? That is the... Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As soon as you take that as a real thing, you have a subjective experience that is doing things. But that's not allowed. The only thing that does things is your fundamental basic layer of physics. And the funny thing is, I got a pointer that you have to go under physics from that revelation. So I, I think revelation is actually pretty good. <laughs> but um, I mean, as a pointer, right, rather than... Say, I would rather have a revelatory experience, be amazed by it, and then go, is that right? Can I falsify this? Can I go out there and reason it through? Which I did, rather than have a revelatory experience and then write a big book about it and go around telling everyone that it's absolutely true. <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> I'd be the same. I mean, I suppose we can't say we know any of this. Like, as I said, I, I think that when you think about it, both are extraordinary claims that a mass of cells creates consciousness as complex as our consciousness is, or that, you know, consciousness isn't connected to us. And, you know, beyond that, I can only say there's evidence, stronger evidence for one than the other, but none of this stuff can we say we know is truth or a fact. No, 
Well, that, that's the thing, you know, ne- neither hypothesis is any more likely really than the other in terms of we don't have a mechanism for either how consciousness can come from non-conscious matter or how consciousness can exist outside of the brain. But for some reason, it's defaulted to the extraordinary claim that it, the brain does produce it rather than the extraordinary claim that it doesn't. And Well, we've been here before with um, bread that goes mouldy. We had this um, spontaneous generation was quite a popular hypothesis. It's, you know, just mould just somehow comes out of bread. No, no, no. You know, we found out later that it was spores that settle on the bread and colonize it. We can also play with other ideas of consciousness, as we were saying, a matrix, a video game. I mean, it's not, those aren't the only Mm. two. And some seem more logical to me than others, but we might as well play with them all. Yeah. And it, it is interesting when you think of the two that have become the most popular and neither are logical. I mean, in the terms of the masses, it's either that our brain magically creates this complex human, probably for dogs, it's very complex for them too, in their own way. Um, this loving emotional experience and the other is not, I mean, the other main popular thing is not like the research of Dr. Julie Beichel or Jim Tucker. It's a God. It's a religion that it's a book, I think basically. a book it, or in other, you know, I mean, I'm being, we bring in Eastern philosophy, Eastern religions like karma, you know, reincarnation through karma. And I would say of all those three, maybe that's the most logical, but still you have to bring in this whole karma, spiritual, like there's no evidence of that. Um, And then, you know, the religion, heaven, like this heaven in clouds, and you have to follow these absurd rules that just have no basis in actual morality to make it in that are completely subjective, that are based on just absurd things. Then you live in a cloud forever or suffer forever I mean, that's less logical to me than consciousness is created by a brain. Oh, yeah. By far. But, but then there's this whole other yeah I, thing that is not commonly known. That's, you know, the research of, you know, Winbridge and DOPS, Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA. You know, I mean, that's the most logical of all of these. Because it's based on empirical data. And, the, you know, the alarming reality is it's going to be a lot, lot weirder, the reality than anything we're kind of imagining at the moment. I think, yeah. Yeah, when you say that, I think that's so true. Oh, well, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I don't, how would I know? Exactly, yeah. I think, for me, I suppose I've still really bought into physics, and in physics, there aren't things that just pop out of nowhere and then disappear back into nowhere. Now, you could say, ah, oh, no, 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 Matthew. No, 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 no. We have particles that pop up from the quantum foam, and they, you know, they disappear back into it. They're virtual particles, you know, like, but you've just said where they come from. It wasn't nothing. It was this underlying quantum foam that you were talking about where they came from. There, there is nothing that comes from nowhere and then just disappears back into nowhere in physics. It's a brand new thing. And it could just be it comes from somewhere we don't know. That doesn't mean nowhere. To say we don't know something doesn't mean it's from nowhere. Right, right, right. It could be from somewhere that we don't understand the nature of and can't even identify yet. Right, which that makes me think of Flatland. Like, do you guys, if you saw it or anyone listening hasn't seen it, but they're showing a two-dimensional experience. And then when it sort of connects with a three-dimensional, if a ball bounces, you know, from 3D into that 2D, the 2D perception is seeing this circle appear and disappear, appear and disappear. And they can't understand what is going on. They're like, that's defying the laws of the universe. No, it's not. It's living in three-dimensional 
law is not two-dimensional. So it's like all these things that were like, that defies the laws. It's no, we just, we're living in a very tight, limited perception. Liz, I've just noticed you, it's gotten quite dark where you are now. I know, I know, I, it has. I should probably move my light for Darren's video, so sorry. Um, also, I'm, I'm going to have to get going kind of soon. It does get dark quick. Any conclusions? Has, has anyone moved their position at all? <laughs> no, but I think we all kind of no, agree. No. I guess I'll say about moving my position. I don't think philosophy is about moving a position. I think for me, I see it. It's like you suspend beliefs you suspend facts and you go into this like temporary space where anything is possible anything is impossible you don't know and let's just talk about anything and let's like play it's like mind exercises like anything could be possible and then you step out of philosophy and you interact in the real world and i think the problem is when things that should be philosophy are treated as fact and then you bring it into the real world i mean that could cause problems i mean people who insist they're the only consciousness and everything's a fantasy i mean depends how far you take it and that's not always but in the most extreme i think when you pick one type of philosophy and decide that's a fact and that's it and you bring that to your whole life so for me i don't think i would necessarily change my opinions in philosophy but i from philosophy i think it's only evidence that would change my mind on things but it's always, I think it expands. I think things, conversations like this make our brains work better and us able to assess evidence better and able to think more. And Yeah, I think I think I, I still have quite a radically different view of philosophy than yourself, which is interesting. I think there's still lots to explore. I think one of the things that I, 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 I think we both found quite exciting was that the idea of um, materialism being this hidden philosophy like it's a philosophy that don't we? It's like water for fish. We don't even realize we're in it, and I think that's possibly the one of the things that we've got to be mindful of is that it's it's, it's the beliefs that we bring to the table without even realizing that we're doing it. Um, I think to acknowledge your point, if we were to look at consciousness uh, purely through the lens of science without further reasoning um, or philosophy, or, or philosophy. Um, you wouldn't be able to say anything about it. I, d I don't think so. Yep. I mean, I don't have anything to add either. I think you just got to keep going isn't you? and f figure out, create the evidence, allow that to kind of dictate your philosophy and your viewpoint and try not to fall into the trap of biases or, you know, author authoritarian influence, because that's very easy to do. I think the key is to be open-minded to engaging with people who hold a radically different opinion than yourself. If you can talk to someone who believes the opposite that you do and have a nice conversation about it to really take it on board, I think you're doing all right. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, 
How is a science-minded atheist? I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance. But that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to wtfjusthappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is and share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Ready to embody that next level calm and confidence? It's time to activate that part of your subconscious. Get the self-paced 11-minute-a-day program by me, author of Confidence Introvert and Certified Subconscious Reprogrammer. Go to stephanietoma.com slash confidence boost. Use code WTF50 for $50 off. Inspired by David Justice, who died after a nearly two-year battle with glioblastoma, JET, Joyful Experience Team, was founded by his son Oliver Justice and his best friends, River Attard, Leo Gerstein, Jack Gorenstein, and Felix Ward. JET seeks to create joyful experiences for families struggling with brain cancer, a chance to enhance their lives with experiences that are rich in love and will be treasured for all time. We believe, like David did, that life should not be measured in time, but in joyful moments. JET will allow families coping with this painful diagnosis to go to special events and be treated like VIPs. Go to makingheadway.org forward slash JET for a complete list of programs and activities. So this is the end of our discussion. You can find Darren and the links to his YouTube channel and social media on his site, seekingi.com. That's seeking-the-letter-i.com. You can find Matthew Riddle on his YouTube channel titled Consciousness Matters. YouTube.com backslash consciousness matters. All of this will be in the show notes. And I hope you enjoyed our discussion. get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife 
and you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened. Oh,